You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Um, hi, everyone. Thanks for coming along. Um, my name is Chris Cottrell. I'm a lecturer, senior lecturer at uh, Monash University and uh, director of the spatial design program there. Um, and Thanks for coming to this uh, panel discussion about sensory architecture and uh, design for autism. Before we start, I just wanted to acknowledge the uh, Yalak Utwilam people of the Binwurrung language group, part of the Greater Kulin Nations, and it's on their lands that the M Pavilion stands and that um, we're holding this conversation today. Um, and I think it's really important to acknowledge that, the, that this land was never ceded, it was forcibly taken from, the, from those people, and it's had an incredibly huge impact on uh, Aboriginal people uh, across the entire country and some of the knowledge and expertise that they've held with them for many thousands and thousands of years um, I think has been kind of lost or forgotten and um, we're kind of dealing with a lot of those consequences uh, in our society and in our environment now which is, you know, I think important to, to remember and, and pay attention to. Um, so I want to pay my respects and acknowledge uh, any um, Aboriginal or Indigenous people here um, and pay my respects to Elders, past, present uh, and in the future as well. Um, so today we're going to um, talk about um, autism and design from a few different kinds of perspectives. Um, and the first thing I probably wanted to just talk about is that I don't, I'm not very comfortable with the idea of ASD or autism spectrum disorder and I'd much rather think about it not as a disorder, but as a condition. And we might talk a little bit more about what the difference is between uh, framing something as a disorder as opposed to just something that happens in the world. Um, for me, I'm interested in learning from people who have autism and thinking about what their sensitivities and what their sort of perceptions can bring into the ways that we understand space and the ways that we can design spaces. Um, and as well as autism, or, or autism alongside a whole of other conditions, is this kind of broader idea of neurodiversity, which is acknowledging that uh, people think about, experience, and interact with the world in lots and lots of different ways. Um, and that as a society, we've tended to um, organize things around what's, what's called, what in contrast to neurodiversity would be this idea of neurotypicality. So um, a very kind of structured, uh, hierarchical organization of knowledge as well that um, that has some limitations. Um, so one of those kind of ideas is um, for neuro neurotypical people, we tend to chunk the world. We tend to break the world down into things that are useful um, for us, for what we're going to do. So we don't have any... It's quite an... It's almost not even an easy process. It's an automatic process of separating out... Um, things that are useful in the environment or things that we want to kind of engage with from what else is in the background. Whereas for um, neuro some neurodiverse people, they don't see a foreground and a background. They don't see some things as being more, they see everything all at once. And that can be really overwhelming, but also kind of really um, a really rich, uh, sensorially rich way of engaging with the world. Um, so today we're going to organize the, the discussion with um, the panel, who I'll introduce in just a second, uh, around three themes. We're going to talk about collaboration, so how do we work as designers and researchers? How do we collaborate? Who do we collaborate with? How do we manage those collaborations? Um, we're going to talk about some of the processes that we use 
in those collaborations, in those kind of projects that, and that we're working on. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about the social impacts that our work does and where, what the sort of future kind of possibilities are. And then we'll have uh, plenty of time for questions at the end as well. And we've got a couple of mics that we can pass around uh, at the end of the session. So if you've got um, questions you'd like to ask, we'd really love to kind of open up into... It's going to be a pretty informal kind of... We're, I'm pretty informal. We're pretty informal. Um, there's going to be more of a conversation. We'd really love to uh, engage with you guys in a, in a kind of conversation uh, later in the session as well. So, um, yeah, to talk about these things, I'm joined by um, Anthony Clark, who's a director of Bloxus Architects, um, and Dr. Beth Johnson, who's, um, oh, I should say that Anthony's also a PhD candidate at Monash University, which is one of the ways that we met, um, and Beth Johnson, who's from the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health at Monash Uni as well, um, where she heads up a project, uh, magnet, a project called Magnet that's uh, looking at uh, the crossovers between ADHD and autism spec, or I should say ADHC for condition rather than disorder, um, and um, uh, autism spectrum conditions as well. So Anthony, Beth, myself, Chris, in alphabetical order, nice and easy, ABC. Um, <laughs> so um, the way we met actually was... Um, uh, I cont I'd, I'd met uh, Anthony through the uh, art design and architecture department and then um, contacted Beth when I sort of became aware of the work that she was doing and the research she was doing. Um, and she said, do you want to come out to the Brain Park? Um, and so maybe that's a kind of a good place to kind of talk, to start and talk about like um, how that was interesting and um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, from, from our point of view, it's a kind of, well, yeah, you can tell us about the kind of what it's designed for, how it's used. So um, I'm from the Turner Institute of Brain and Mental Health and uh, one of their first facilities that um, was established was Brain Park. Um, Brain Park was um, designed to create a space for research um, that didn't feel like a hospital. One of the difficulties with uh, research... Um, Oh, and with hospitals is that people don't want to go to hospitals or anything that feels like a hospital. Um, and particularly if you're trying to take part in um, like long-term research studies, you want to make that a really enjoyable experience for people. Um, so they created a really very, very nice space um, which was focused around... Uh, like the original intention of that was to support people who um, were experiencing addiction um, and OCD uh, and... The other thing that I saw as soon as I walked in was it was be a great space for working with kids with autism and ADHD. Um, it was very calm. The colours were very calm. Um, the furniture, they have these fantastic pods. They're these chairs with high backs that curl around you and you can curl up in them. And so for kids taking part in our research, they can, you know, come in. And, you know, we, we do a bunch of assessments with them and then they can just take a break and they can curl up inside these little pods and then they're ready, recharged and ready to go. And there's also a, a garden which is called, ironically for me, the meditation garden, though most of our kids use it for climbing on rocks and touching trees and pulling plants out. Um, but it's fantastic. So um, that was sort of the intention of Brain Park was just to create a really nice space that um, suited a range of people with a range of conditions um, and um, mental health conditions, yeah. And so, um, so Anthony and I went out there to meet with Beth and see about some of the work she was doing, but yeah, we were really interested in some of those design things that you're talking about and 
yeah, I'm wondering a little bit, Anthony, like what your kind of um, impressions were or how it relates to some of the work you've done in a domestic design for, for people with autism as well. Um, so, yeah, my name's Anthony Clark. I run a, a small architecture practice in, uh, in Fitzroy and also doing a PhD. Uh, and a lot of the work that we do is not necessarily uh, just uh, um, autism-based, but we do work with dementia and trauma, childhood trauma, uh, and doing more now with chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, and met Chris through uh, through teaching at um, Monash uh, because we have similar overlaps in our interests, um, and because we're both sort of very curious about uh, how we can, as architects, make a bigger impact. Uh, and so the majority of the work that we've that I've been doing has been working with uh, individual houses. So we we've done quite a few houses for families with autistic children. Um, but now the PhD is kind of based because I also am working on a project, a bigger project where it's looking at um, uh, an assessment facility for children who have either been, who, who have autism or have been through foster care. So my interest is now how to, how to take these sort of uh, very individual type projects where we're dealing with specific conditions or specific kind of um, uh, unique uh, and then working out how we can sort of how we can take those individual and, and use them in bigger projects. And I think it's important to talk about the fact that uh, we, we have to do that. We have to treat these projects as very much research based, and that we have to kind of start at a small scale, whether it's sort of experimental or residential scale, before we think that we can sort of make big impacts that are going to you know change change things dramatically. I think we have to say we as architects need to learn what we're, what we're not doing well and that we haven't done right and be open and, and very transparent about that through a kind of um, research and uh, transparency process to, to really make change. Well, you were, well we were talking um, just beforehand about this idea that we, um, Joss Boyce, who's a researcher based in the UK, talks about the idea of uh, designers being allies rather than experts. And for me in the projects I've been doing as well, I'm much more... I'm going into it trying to learn from the people I'm working with. They're the experts of their own experience. And, and the, the challenge, one of the challenges is how to kind of um, understand the way that they're seeing the world or working um, with the environment and, and sort of bringing that into our own kind of uh, ways of thinking and ways of working. Um, I think that's what's so interesting about the, the idea of going out to Brain Park is architects working with scientists and neuroscience is quite um, unusual but there's so much for us to learn about how we can um, you know take all that information and try and work out how we as architects can kind of use other disciplines research and manifest that into some sort of outcome and then test that so that we actually architecture becomes part of a research process as as opposed to just a sort of outcome how it feeds back into, you know, the research that you're doing. Yeah, I was actually going to say that the flip side for me is I hadn't realised how um, profound an impact the design of a facility has on the quality of data I get as a neuroscientist. So contrasting it, so the other spaces that I do research are like the facility I used before, which is a very white clinical hospital looking space and kids would run around and make a lot of noise and it was very echoey and it was trying to it was difficult to contain and the other space that I do my research in is I take we take our lab out to schools and then we'd have to kind of jerry-rig everything to make stuff work in a 
you know, state school environment often where there's, you know, lots of multi-use spaces that aren't working very well and crap everywhere. And um, so, yeah, it's um, been really interesting to, will, will be, to see how the quality of the data and the, um, the child's anxiety changes in different sorts of spaces. Um, maybe on that kind of note of well as like the difference between the kind of or um, yeah what, what are some of the things in those how, when you talk about sort of rigging up a um, state school space or something like that to make it workable what are the kinds of things that you look to do? Uh, the first thing I do is uh, take away all of the distractions. <laughs> so state schools are very busy places. Um, and for like I work with a lot with kids with ADHD as well and there's a lot of comorbidity between um, autistic individuals and ADHD. And so the first thing I do is we take down all the posters off the walls and just make it really sparse and calm. And, um, yeah, and we've also then sort of introduced very specific things like puppets. We use a lot of puppets uh, to help kids because... Um, they're, they're, I guess, less confrontational than sometimes a foreign researcher, um, you know, who they're not familiar with. Um, they're some of the main ones, yeah. Yeah, but I can see how, yeah, the difference between taking things away can make a space feel a lot more austere or a lot kind of, um, yeah, maybe, and so the Brain Park does have that kind of, it's sort of an interesting space because it feels almost domestic in some ways or sort of loungy or... Yeah, but and yeah, there isn't a lot of distraction there, but it's not you don't notice that there's an absence of things whereas I think you almost expect like a school environment to have this kind of quite uh stimulating kind of background. Yeah. Yeah. Um Yeah, I I mean I think like in the project I'm working on at the moment, like I'm working in a um on a residential project that's in New Zealand uh for a family with um some young with well t with two children, one who's uh, got sensory processing issues where he's highly sensitive to certain stimulus and yeah needs to kind of uh, modulate uh, his environment. Um, he's been excluded from a couple of schools, so he's also being homeschooled, which creates a whole other another level of complexity about how that that home environment works. Um, but definitely, like it's a very again, like I mean, life is really big and kind of noisy and complicated. And one of the things working there is. Um, to try and understand, like, working with the family, like, working with his parents, working with him, building up a rapport. And a lot of the the design work I'm doing, you know, it's kind of cardboard. It's like making cubbies. There's cardboard boxes and there's bits of fabric and there's, you know, we started with playing with Lego and things like that, which is something he really enjoys. So it's trying to find ways into the way he thinks about uh, the world and the environment one of the things, one of the first things I noticed was this kind of huge Lego thing that he'd built, and um, it was amazing. It was really kind of intricate, really detailed, but there was almost no instance where there was lots and lots of different colours, and there was almost no instance where there was two bricks of the same colour next to each other, which is totally different from the way I played with Lego as a kid. Like I had little boxes where I'd put all of the blue ones in here and all of the this size ones in there, and I was very like it was a really interesting, for me, it was an, a way where I could quickly relate to a different way of, a different logic of structuring uh, space and colour and these kinds of things. And, it, and and then that kind of went further when I sort of asked him, like, well, what colours do you like? What's your favourite colour? You know, a classic, you know, kind of question you'd ask an eight-year-old kid. And he's like, oh, my favourite colour is multicolour. And I was like, oh, okay. So, and I didn't even, like, I wouldn't have even thought about that as an option. 
you know, as like I couldn't choose that, I had to choose one of these other things. And so that's, I think, one of those interesting moments where you can kind of learn from and kind of it opens up the way I think about the world or think about the kind of categories we use. Um, but that's been, you know, it's been a really interesting process and it's been quite a slow process because they're based in New Zealand and so um, I've gone over to visit on a number of occasions and then we do these kind of two or three days worth of intensive work but um, one of the hard parts of it is is that um, yeah, the gaps in between or how you kind of keep a process kind of moving and, and kind of keep things interesting or you go over there for, you know, you've got three days to work and there's one day where he's just not really interested in what I'm doing at all. And you, so, so it's been interesting, like the, the kind of degree of patience that you need to have and just letting things kind of happen slowly or there'll be something he's really excited about, but that are just like, you know, it's like, let's build it, like, let's go and like make this big treehouse. Let's do the drawings for the treehouse. It's like, yeah, I think we need to figure out your living spaces as well, but let's go and, you know, so you sort of got to go with um, what's being offered, but also kind of navigate and find ways to sort of bend things back uh, to, to what you're trying to do, but, you know, not in a, in a kind of, yeah, being um, too assertive isn't going to work either. His parents talk about it as a process of working with um, stealth and, uh, uh, yeah, learning by, by stealth and by accident rather than anything kind of deliberate. So um, I think some of those ideas of, of process are kind of, quite interesting for me but maybe like Anthony do you want to talk about um, some of the processes you use how you go from um, meeting a client or working on a project and then building that up into yeah through that research phase that you talked about before and who you collaborate with maybe in that research phase but the other kind of processes how that leads to a, a kind of built income a built income outcome <laughs> yeah I mean we have different um, it's a very different process for each project so we've had uh, projects with clients who have childhood trauma and uh, families with young, as I said, young, young autistic children and chronic fatigue. And they're all very different because uh, your level of access to the individuals is quite different. Um, Brett, for example, who we did a project for with childhood trauma, uh, is very open. So the process was very cathartic for him and, uh, and has been an amazing process for me. And I'd say that's more about a curiosity of him needing somebody to um, talk to about these things as well, outside of his kind of um, immediate family. But also, uh, I would say the same sort of process that we've had with all of the uh, families is it's a very kind of empathic, unique process of getting to know these people, getting to know how they live, and not the kind of simple... You know, I, I kind of think... I suppose for me now, I think the process that I have now is very different to the process I used to have. So I'm starting to see things very differently because I'm hyper aware of uh, the differences between everybody and particularly with these sorts of clients that I have. You know, Brett um, hadn't slept. And, I, and I, talk, I can talk about Brett because he, he's fine with me talking about it. But, um, uh, you know, he hadn't slept for 50 years, really. I mean, on and off in a very unique process. Uh, may sleep for three days, may not sleep for three days, may have... Um, but, uh, you know, he sleeps in an environment that I couldn't sleep in, uh, that most other people couldn't probably sleep in. Um, and, but that's kind of based on, on his 
uh, you know, the outcome of how he's processed something that happened to him a long time ago. But also what's interesting is, you know, for, as, as a sort of example of process, we do site analysis, which is, you know, have, uh, there's probably lots of architects, and site analysis is going somewhere and mapping that environment and taking photographs and doing drawings and trying to understand. Uh, but, but the difference now for me is that it's less about monitoring what's there and more about monitoring how they've adapted it over time. So Brett may have been in this room for 20 years and the fact is that um, he's got layers of curtains or certain little things that he's done over time to ensure that his sleep patterns are better. And it's kind of about finding those little things. Is it about a routine or a ritual or where he put certain things or a kind of logic that he has that kind of all helps him sleep a little bit, little bit better that's been adapted over time? So it's more kind of, um, you know, a process of being much more inquisitive and not thinking that, uh, one, you can solve the problem in, in one go, but also not thinking that you can uh, apply the same process, which I think is kind of what gets difficult when you try and upscale things, is the processes are so unique. Mm. And, you know, the process that we're working with Taylor in the Brosser Valley, we don't get access to her because, you know, she's really sick. So we deal with her father a lot of the time and... We've spoke about you know the idea of paternalism. You know me making as an architect making the decision for somebody who's sort of in a bedroom. You know how do I how do I do that without kind of trying to understand as much as I can about that person's unique place and that person's kind of unique processes and what they've been through. But I'm also not a psychologist, so I have to talk to psychologists. And I'm also not a neuroscientist, but I need to talk to neuroscientists mm. to try and work out as much as I can, as opposed to thinking that uh, just being an architect and creating nice space actually makes these things fine or better, when I just don't think it does, necessarily. Maybe later, yeah. Um, I was just, when you're sort of talking about that as well, it is this idea of like the, um, the you know, as an architect, one of the, the, the skills that you have, I guess, is working with and coordinating a whole lot of different um, people you know, and bringing people together to work on this kind of bigger project. But like you say, it's expanded. Not It's not just the kind of uh, built building trades or, you know, engineering and consulting kind of things as well. It's actually this much wider, you know, neuroscientists and psychologists, like you say, which, yeah, I think is, it's, a, it's, a, it's a related skill, but it's kind of important to um, recognise that as a, as a really kind of key part of that, that process. Well, I think yeah. it's important for us to listen to all of these unbelievable ally disciplines and see which ones are relevant. So neuroscience in uh, a, a myriad of ways is relevant and in a lot of ways it's not. But I went to a conference last week and they were talking about um, uh, neuroethics and you know how, to, how do you deal with the idea of getting somebody to sign something to say they agree to something before it happens knowing that when they've had the brain stimulation, for example, they're going to be a different person at the end of that. So they've mm. approved something, but they may not approve the outcome. Yeah. And I think, yeah. I think that's kind of part of saying uh, what we do should be kind of, we're saying we've gathered all this information and we've applied what we think, but actually what it is is step one. Mm. And then that needs to be, it needs to sort of go through a process in order for us to kind of say, yes, now we understand that part of the built form is, is relevant or it's not relevant. And mm. you know, then we move on to the next one and the next one. And mm. 
So the other thing I was going to add is I'm, I'm not a psychologist but I work a lot with psychologists and they are fantastic at picking apart how individuals actually interact with the environment. So architects work with the built environment and how that impacts on us but psychologists are great at doing the reverse. So I would always recommend um, <clears throat> and they've got these great tools for picking apart behaviour and, and sort of what the specific parts of behaviour are and how different parts of the environment are you know, eliciting those behaviours. So they've got this fantastic toolkit that I absolutely admire. <laughs> mm. And then I think, you know, the other kind of challenge as well is that, you know, that the, there's often lots of, you know, and maybe this kind of ties into some of the, um, some of your research that a lot of these things are kind of coexistent or there's, it's maybe not as simple as that thing causes that thing over there. It's a lot more complex kind of network of, you know, in the, the spaces that we live in or the things that, you know, there might be things that we don't even notice but, uh, you know, highly problematic for someone else. But so, yeah, I think there's a really interesting challenge there in the um, interrelationships between not only the different way, well, the different ways of understanding the, the, the environment or the spaces that we inhabit, you know, that, um, yeah, it's not, uh, yeah, the kind of, pathways or you know you can and it is kind of an, an ongoing experiment or testing out or trying out these things and yeah there's there's so much I mean I know like Anthony and I have spoken a little bit about the difference between designing for an individual that you can get to know very well and then how that might translate to say a school or a hospital or a, a clinical space that could have lots of different people in it that you you know aren't going to know and spend weeks, months with beforehand to get to know their kind of particularities. Well, it's interesting. The project that we're working on at the um, for Childhood Assessment Centre, uh, so we've been speaking with the clinicians and, you know, the nurses out there and they say we see all, all types of different uh, families who have been through unbelievable things um, and they all come in with different situations, different backgrounds, what the, what the you know, parent situation or... But they said, ultimately, the, the children all act out in the same way. They all... So they've, they've come with different things, but mm, actually mm. Um, what they're trying to get away from or what they're trying to get or, what or where they find solitude or where they find... Ki is kind of quite similar. So I'm not saying the overlaps of, of mm. what they've been through is similar, but potentially mm, the mm. kind of um, how they process them are kind mm. of relatively similar. And I suppose understanding as much as you can about that allows you to kind of make some design decisions that can be tested. Mm. Um, but it's a starting point to kind of, you know, you've, you've, got to, you've got to understand what those very complex overlaps are as opposed to, you know, just making a decision because you think that's the right design decision. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So I'm often um, thinking about this in the context of state schools because that's where I spend a lot of time and in the context of hospitals. Um, and I've recently um, been working on a project that's about to be published looking at the experiences of uh, children attending emergency departments in Victoria, oh, actually across Australia. And um, we're trying to look for sort of the worst outcomes in a hospital space are kids having a meltdown and absconding or needing sedation. That's like you never want a child to get to that point in a hospital. Um, but, you know, in about 
uh, for one in ten kids, um, autistic kids, that who have to attend emergency departments. That's the state that they end in. So what are the sort of environmental... Got to be thinking about what are the environmental triggers that have led them to get to that point. Um, and so for some kids who are really sensory-seeking, they, um, you know, being stopped from doing engaging in those behaviours like running around or needing to burn off excess energy during a four-hour wait in an emergency department. And for other kids, it's, you know, having all of the beeping and the smells and the constant changes in environment and how, you know, those kinds of things trigger these meltdowns. And so <clears throat> it, this sort of seems to me to be kind of across the kids that I see with um, autism and ADHD, like that need for both being able to interact freely in the environment but then also needing space to withdraw and that's like a, a commonality that I see across that and in the state schools as well. So, you know, having space for a child with ADHD um, to pace freely as they need to, to burn off their excess energy or to walk and think at the same time and then also when things are getting too much to have a space to calm down and, you know, just get ground themselves again. Um, and so I guess, I guess that's, a, that's a really nice kind of example of where, the re where our kind of interests kind of overlap, I guess. Um, and I, I guess it would be interesting maybe or, uh, to just to talk a little bit more about like some of the other kinds of um, benefits or the, the kind of social kind of impacts that your, your research is w working towards specifically. So that's a, that's a really nice example. But yeah, in terms of in schooling and, and things as well? Um, yeah, so um, <clears throat> I'm always thinking about how... So I'm leading a large project where we're um, uh, collecting data from across a thousand families from across Victoria um, who've got either... who are either neurotypical or autistic or ADHD or some blend of the two or three um, and uh, everything in the middle. Um, and we're trying to, you know, find sub, sub, subtypes across the whole big mess that is autism and ADHD. Um, but in doing so, I've sort of had to really think about, like, in getting, like, seeing such a large volume of family, and we're seeing whole families, so we're seeing siblings, um, so where there's one neurotypical child and the other siblings got a diagnosis, or whether the whole family's got a diagnosis and everything in between, and how they're, and we get to see very intimately how their day-to-day -day lives work, and it's, um, and so I'm always thinking about, well, how do we improve their experience, taking part in research, and how does that look for them in the school environment? They've got all these really complex needs. Um, so in terms of thinking about the translation of that, my research and, you know, the, the, the whole point of diagnosis is to be able to um, either recommend treatment outcomes or to um, indicate something about prognosis. So what is your life going to look like with this condition? Are you going to grow out of it or are you going to, is it going to be a lifelong thing? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and so how will that look across the lifespan and how will you interact with the world and the medical system and the education system across the lifespan? And so how can we you know, support these physical environments as well as educational and medical environments to get the best out of these kids and families and give them the best quality of life? Yeah, yeah. Um, just for people like so, would would say sensory processing condition be an example mm. of a subtype where it's yeah. So um, sensory processing disorder is a really interesting one because it's not actually a formally recognised diagnosis. It's mm. kind of like if you see like the the 
DSM is like the Bible of, you know, are, are you in or out in terms of having a diagnosis? And there's this sort of grey area over here. There's kids that have got some, you know, they might have a bit of anxiety but it's not completely disabling or they might have some sensory issues but it's not enough to say, yes, you clearly have this disorder. And that's what we think about neurodiversity. Um, there's like... You know, kids mm. who've you know severely disabled, and for which a medical model works really well for them. And then there's you know kids who, where it's more of a social disability. So with societal accommodations, um, they actually get along really fine. And then there's kids who've just got sort of you know particularities in certain specific areas like memory or sensory seeking, mm. or mm. you know hate the smell of tuna and can't work in <laughs> you know, things yeah. like that, yeah. and everything in between. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think with well, with the I don't know what DSM stands for, but oh, so, uh, the diagnostic statistics manual. manual. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. There we go. Oh, maybe I do. Yeah, I'm just good at or good at guessing acronyms. Yeah. Um, but we, um, Anthony and I, were at a, a talk by Temple Grandin earlier in the year as well, and she was talking. That came up in the kind of questions and discussions with her. Um, Temple Grandin, if people don't know, is a, quite a, a famous uh, woman with um, autism who's who's done a whole lot of work um, in. Uh, design for the cattle industry in the U in the US, um, but it's got an incredible visual um, in visual intelligence where she can kind of figure out a whole kind of process or engineering process in her head. Um, she mapped she mapped the sort of natural movements of cows to work out essentially if you if you move them in certain directions uh, by the time they get loaded onto a truck or by the time they get kind of killed they're they're not stressed, and that means they can't you know they can see a certain Five meters in front, five meters behind, yeah. they, and they, you know, no reflections of water puddles because they get freaked out. So it was all this kind of um, mapping sort of, of, subtle, their, of yeah. what they would avoid and which direction they would they would go in. But one one interesting example of Temple Grandin was that that um, she also had a which I've seen an, a local artist do recently, where she worked out that if you also compress cows slightly. From the sides, that their um, anxiety levels drop. Oh yeah, and then yeah, so yeah. she built. Remember, and then she yeah, built one for herself. Hugging, hugging machine. Yeah, yeah, hugging machines. Yeah, yeah. talking you about said the yeah. whole weighted blanket industry uh, so yeah. works really well for some and not others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but the but the um she was talking about like I think the the new or the uh, um I think it's the next edition of the DSM does actually include a whole lot of stuff around sensory um, kind of things. I think DSM or the other. There's two oh, kind I of categories. Yeah, I said 8 10. Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, the, so I think it's interesting that there's some sort of some changes or some recognition starting to happen kind of across, across some of those things. Um, maybe as well, like I think the other thing like I sort of touched on at the beginning was some of these ideas about communication and language and, and some of the challenges that that has, um, which I guess comes into that sort of the, the diagnosis and the you know, the the ways that things are um, kind of categorised in some of those kind of things, but also in the way that you kind of work with people and, and, and those kinds of things. Do you want to... Well, I, language, language is the hardest, actually. I find language is really, really hard to talk about. And I, one example... Um, well, not... Yeah, language, communication. Language because, um, you know, you don't want to marginalise and, and have kind of statements and, and, you know, these people are fit into certain groups and they have certain things and um, it's very hard to avoid and the idea of certain groups have certain uh, has set up sort of certain... Ha have to set up certain names so that they can get funding and then as soon as they... You know, chronic fatigue is a kind of good example of that where, you know, nobody, nobody wants that title but the t they've kind of got that title. Um, 
and that's you know helps them get money essentially. Yeah, and, and I guess be organised and be recognised and yeah, yeah, yeah. That's certainly the case for autism at the moment. So um, a lot of, as I mentioned, there's a lot of overlap between autism and ADHD. And uh, if you've got a diagnosis of straight ADHD, you're unlikely to receive NDIS funding, but Autism is, um, I think, the most highly funded condition. So there's, it's kind of a big ticket diagnosis for getting access to the, you know, interventions and daily services that you need. It's to yeah. be, that's controversial, but that's what we're seeing in um, the certainly in the clinical space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think for me, like I talked about it at the beginning, that there's this idea of um attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or autism spectrum disorder and i think for me there's a um there's kind of like i'm i'm quite uncomfortable about that because i think it does set up this kind of um well it looks at the problem from a particular perspective which is here's normal over here and that's not normal and you need to come over this way and i think the other way of thinking about it is to think of this you know and i think that is starting to happen um, of this idea of a, it's a it's a condition and it's part of a, a spectrum of experience and that actually it's not about normalizing people but actually accepting that that breadth of difference and experience and then adjusting um, society and the spaces that we inhabit um, to, to kind of support that. Yeah, and I was just going to say too, when the title of um, our panel came out, I, I did feel a bit uncomfortable about it because I was like, oh, there's so much you know, being thrown towards autism at the moment, but there's actually a whole bunch of rare genetic conditions and which are, you know, and, you know, other common neurodevelopmental disorders that share the same kind of sensory mm. sensory challenges, mm. um, but they kind of get pushed to the sideline. So, I mean, like autism, obviously for me, <laughs> as an autism researcher, is very important, but I also think too, like, there's, there's a whole bunch of conditions that are kind of getting yeah. ignored because yeah. of that. So it's great that for autism, but we also need to sort of recognise that th these sort of sensory issues that we see in autism are also mm. common in lots of other conditions too. Mm. Mm. And I think that's like that's the kind of yeah this this kind of term neurodiversity that's mm. kind of coming into maybe not mainstream usage yet, but it's but it's sort of you know there's been things where I've introduced myself and said oh, I'm interested in neurodiversity in space, and then the person next to me who has a whole lot of neurodiverse conditions is like I'm just really excited that you use that word because I don't hear anyone else ever use it. So I think there's there's those kinds of things where um, you know we were talking before about um, the designs of schools and how um, the space can be adapted or modified or made. Um, in such a way that's more supportive or more inclusive for 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 everyone who's using it, but it's also like the understanding of the teachers in the classroom. You know, to give the example of the school, the teachers in the classroom and the the other children in the classroom having that kind of awareness and sort of social intelligence about hey, there is this. You know, um, yeah, this is this is happening over here, and that's totally fine. Oh, they're just going and doing their thing. That's you know. So I think you know, it's still quite a long a long way to go on on that front as well you know that, that that's another another kind of one of the bigger longer term challenges um, we were just talking um, just before the panel actually um, with someone in the audience I can't remember they've gone um, but how when I go into school state schools in particular there is like this stock standard building that you see every time it's like this kind of v-shaped construction and it's really interesting um, 
<laughs> and it's, it's so weird. It's like, oh, he's that footy again. Was I in this school last week? Oh, no, it's a different school, but it's exactly the same. Um, and uh, it's like this open plan kind of set up. And I always, like, whenever I see it and I see all these kids everywhere, I just all, instantly feel for all the autistic children in there because feeling overwhelmed and all these kids around them. Um, and, yeah, so I, I, it's really interesting to see how each of the schools is the, the numbers of kids with, like, the autism diagnosis or um, whatever other conditions they have there, um, how they then have to adapt that space to accommodate the number of children with the number of different conditions that they have. Um, yeah, because it, yeah. it's great. I'm sure the collaborative working spaces are great for the neurotypical kids, but there's like, you know, the 5% of kids that cause the teachers the most amount of problems day to day. Like, like a, lot, a lot of it's just in the environment. Yeah. So Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess there's those other kinds of things that are starting to happen now as well, like supermarkets having like sensory hours or at Marvel Stadium there's now a, a kind of quiet room or sensory kind of room where where you can still watch the match that's happening but you know if the smells of or the sounds or the movement of the crowd or something like that is too overwhelming there's a space you can kind of move back to so so there are these kinds of you know and the museums and the um, the art gallery across the road they have have sort of a sensory map of you know what's happening in in the different spaces, how how you might navigate those. So, so there's some things starting to happen there, but I think there's some questions about whether they're doing kind of enough or. Yeah, I think there's a, I think there is a lot of things happening, but it's also that um, a lot of these projects are getting built too fast. And um, I went to a designing environments conference about a month ago, and they were basically saying that you know schools and these projects here, they need to build them so fast, and it's they're they're in they're ahead of the research. So there's no time. Um, and what generally happens is money for post-occupancy evaluation is there and then it gets spent uh, and then they just don't do them, you know, so they get kind of lost. But we were asked to, to go to Collingwood Primary School to, um, to have a look at their current situation because, you know, one other thing is, like you mentioned, the teachers is they were talking about a lot of the um, autistic children don't want to go outside to play with the other kids. So they stay inside, and then um, you know the the teachers need to uh, stay with them through the through the lunch break. Mm. So I think you know for them they're also kind of going. Not only are the kids kind of missing out on being part of what's going on outside, they're also kind of um, you know staying inside and staying kind of isolated and staying with the kind of adults. So they're looking at how they can you know bring in uh, yes yeah, some sort of external pod or something where the kids can still engage and be part of watching things and not necessarily have to engage or, be, or choose to engage if they want to. But again, it's the same sort of thing where at the moment they're very, uh, instead of being wrapped as part of the process, they're very kind of reactionary outcomes. Mm. Mm. Um, or maybe, I mean, I guess the only other kind of point I wanted to touch on was some of these ideas of um, universal design and um, kind of co-design and those kinds of ideas that are... Um, circulating or, or kind of principles for how you might kind of approach. Um, and, and that kind of idea of universal design is, is, is this idea that rather than, I'm trying to think of what a, a nice example might be, like one, or one example is, a classic example is the kind of dip in the curve to, uh, in the curb to help people cross the road. And that was originally for, to help people with prams, but then it also has all these other things where it becomes really useful for someone delivering something to a store or someone else who's partially sighted or yeah. Parkinson's disease Parkinson's disease and so so there's these kinds of ideas of uh, how can you start to think about um, 
space in the most kind of inclusive way possible, which is a real challenge, I think, to because there's so many things that you can't anticipate, you know, and the interesting thing is it came out of something that wasn't anticipated, and I think that's one of those things, like you're saying, that the schools are being built so quickly that they can't actually learn from what's happened and then what's happening, you know, they can't fold that into the design process for the next kind of iteration, it's all just kind of coming out, rolling out kind of the same way, yeah. Most of them are having to find their own funding to do these things. Mm. You know, they're not kind of getting big, massive chunks of money. Mm. Um, so they're not necessarily going through a good process of, uh, of working out what will and won't work or what's kind of, you know, that's going to last for a year to be able to be tested or something. They're kind of quite crappy a lot yeah. of the time. Yeah. Um, but I think universal design and these sort of things are, are good and I think the idea of having them is kind of good. But actually what we've found is... There's lots of there's quite a lot of principles. There's quite a lot of guidelines, but as architects, we generally generalising architects is we you know we tend to pick the ones that we that work with what we've already done. So we've designed something and we've got these seven principles, and three of them are kind of workable, and the others you know we've taken a little bit. So I think you know as part of that, it kind of gets a bit risky. Is the idea of universal design because you can apply them in any way you want, really. And, and you don't have to necessarily follow through um, with the, you know, with, well, they're quite interpretive. Well, I mean, I'm, and I'm having a kind of similar challenge with the project in New Zealand where I know a lot about what needs to happen, but it is that kind of tricky moment in design where there's this huge amount of complexity and you've got to start to distill that down into a couple of things that you're going to prioritise to sort of begin with but not leave behind all that other complexity and kind of keep that stuff alive and in the mix. And yeah. how does that look over the child or family's lifespan as well and the duration yeah, well, they'll be in the exactly. occupancy? Yeah, yeah, and so that's something that the, the family brought up. So their children are six and nine, um, but, you know, that, you know, the next five to ten years is going to be a really kind of dramatic, um, yeah, kind of change for how their, their kind of living environment looks and the kinds of needs that they have. So that's something to think about as that we've been talking about as well as how do you start to build in more independence um, or yeah, more kind of yeah, more autonomy into into their children's lives as they as they grow up as well. Yeah. Actually that's a really interesting point that I've only just thought of just then is that you see these really inclusive design spaces or like even if they have to be a bit jerry-rigged in the state school system but there's absolutely nothing like that that I've seen in the secondary school system. It's still just your portables and your, you know, spaces and, you know. <laughs> um, so that's, there's a lot of efforts that go in by the staff at, at the state school uh, – sorry, at the primary school level but not the high school level. So um, I don't know what happens like – why why there's less priority there, given that teenagers uh, tend to have big spikes in um, all of these kinds of... Um, that's where a lot of the onset for other kind of emotional and um, mental health issues come on. So, mm. yeah. Mm. Um, we've kind of looped around and across in a bit there, but, um, <laughs> but it would be really interesting. I think some of these things um, that we're sort of touching on just before around the design of different spaces and maybe some of the ways that spaces that you go to are making accommodations for different people. It would be really interesting to hear like other people's experiences of that. So if there's anyone, or if you've got other questions for us, it would be really great to open it up into a, a bigger kind of discussion. We've got a microphone over here. Uh, 
Uh, thank you. Um, I, I'm just, it's really reverbing there. Um, just a question around landscape architect lens here. Um, your research obviously has been quite um, evolved around built form and hospitals and schools and, and um, from what's been presented. Just keen to hear about your approach for the public realm as well. And I know it's, it's a big question um, and much harder to perhaps containerize. But also the role of the carer in that space as well, not just the um, child or um, uh, person with ASD as well. Yeah. That was one of the questions that we were kind of terrified of, of the like, okay, no, 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 no. It's a really good question, right? Like, I mean, and I think, you know, like, I'm certainly not expert in that. It's okay. Um, uh, in, a, in a huge sense, but one thing even at a residential scale is, is thinking about, like the project I'm working on, one of the big things is that um, their son loves to be outside, but it's a really complicated convoluted kind of series of lean-tos and circulation routes to get out there. And so one of the main drivers is actually like, what are the different ways we can open up the house to a, a new garden and what kind of a garden will that be in? Because he's very, um, we did a little kind of project where we were working with smell and, um, you know, like he loves the smell of lavender and then there was rosemary growing as well and he's like, you know, his words were like, this makes my nose smell like it's on fire, you know, or this makes me feel like my nose is on fire. So um, I think there's a lot of kind of, again, for me, like, you know, at the, at the kind of individual level, it, it can be about just starting to understand and learn from the, that, or when I say individual, maybe I mean like the family level, what they kind of need, what the, um, what the different kinds of uh, priorities might be. Um, what are the different kinds of activities that they want to um, kind of undertake. When you start to extrapolate that out into a kind of bigger kind of public realm, then it, yeah, it, it's quite complicated because it, it is these things of like, well, we're not all the same. And so how do you start to um, offer things that might be um, exciting to some people, invisible to other people, highly offensive to somebody else and how do you kind of start to modulate that is yeah really challenging but maybe that idea of just a diversity of experiences is actually is I've got a really important thing so uh, my um, my PhD was actually in motor control in kids with autism and ADHD and so one of the things that's not super well known is that kids with autism have lots of motor impairments so fine motor impairments tracking moving objects um, gross motor impairments they're notorious like Many children on the autism spectrum are notoriously clumsy um, and that can then impact on their ability to engage in group sports or, you know, things that we kind of take for granted that kids should be able to do, like getting in playing soccer. And uh, that's not even to mention, like, all of the social complexities that come with kids playing games together, like kids make up the rules all the time and then change them, which is usually problematic as well for kids with autism. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I think keeping in mind that it's not one of the symptoms that's often talked about but has a lot of social impact is this motor impairment, gross and fine motor impairment. So, um, and the flip side is that a lot of kids with ADHD have got a lot of excess energy that they want to burn out. So, and they're often more risk-taking, so they're the ones you'll see down at the skate park and things like that, but then there's all of these kids with autism that still want to be in the outside, still want to be doing that, but may not have the physicality to do that. So I don't, I don't know how you go, go about accommodating that. Um, maybe just diversity of spaces is good, um, but, yeah, I just thought I'd let you know. Are you, are you 
you a landscape architect? Is it? What? I'm a landscape architect. Right. Ah, okay. It's interesting. We did a uh, the the house. One of the recent houses we did was for a family with uh, an autistic boy, and we went to um, Brett's house, who was from the um, childhood, and and they they have this amazing garden that they love, and Jennifer tends to it all the time, and. Um, and we took the clients, including their son, around. And the thing he did is went and pulled all the heads off all her flowers and rubbed <laughs> them in his hands. And, you know, that's, and, and they were kind of aware that that potentially would happen. But what was kind of interesting is when it came to do the, the landscaping for their project, it's very much based on, um, uh, you know, there's no front door of the house and, there's, and all the walls are climbable. So essentially, so all the, all the walls, the idea with, with it is that he has um, sensory seeking disorders, so all the walls are kind of, um, he can rub at different levels to know where he needs to go to get a certain sensory output. And that included the kind of landscape as well, where, where if he wants to kind of get an intense smell, he would go, where if he wants to rub something in his hands, he would go, where he'd kind of want to climb a wall, he would go. So I think, you know, you could, I suppose that's a kind of micro level in, in terms of how you might think about the big environment and think about, uh, where you might put these certain things and not think about them as being uh, nice to look at but actually kind of part of a, of a, of a need and, and that it's okay to kind of mm. rip them off and smell them and chuck them away or kind of climb something. And, and Actually, that's really interesting with the um, meditation garden at Brain Park is that there's these large um, flat rocks that were supposed to be for meditation but all of the kids with... What does my ADHD do is they just climb all over them and they rip their heads off all the daisies and they swing on the trees and that's how sort of get them back to focus again. We run them literally they, halfway through the session. There's like this um, intermission, go and run outside, rip their heads off the daisies, jump on all the rocks and they love it and then they come back in ready to go. So. Yeah. First of all, thank you so much for facilitating this. It's so interesting. Um, so I'm very, um, my background is acupuncture, so I've been very interested in everything about frequency and energy field. And my 20 years ago, I used to, to work with Down syndrome kids and autistic kids back in UK. So I was uh, um, yeah, doing, facilitating um, uh, speech therapy and also um, babysitting. And at the time, there was a lot of questions about I had a, a part of the TCM, the Chinese acupuncture. So I started to study energetic healing from the time of Egypt in Hotep. And the, the, the timeline of events, like the, the lineage between in Hotep from the architecture space and the healing studies that took me from UK to here. And like with the hands-on healing, we learned about, a lot about um, angles, geometry, and I remember that I brought the, the specific science about a 51 degrees angle towards the healing for the kids, which I also um, had the opportunity to work with for the special needs kids, and the enormity of calm and stillness that was in the room by we designing a little um, wood uh, triangle with the tree angles of 51 degrees, they could drop into stillness way faster than, um, you know, than in a hectic environment. So my question here is, 
um, you know, that, 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 that between architecture and healing, the energy, where that would sit nowadays. I know there is a lot of shift with the template from science, how it being preconceived. There is a there is a mental shift occurring. Where that would sit with this, what you guys bringing about? Um, well, maybe one of those ways is, is kind of the thanks for the question as well. Um, is um, just around that idea of the, the need to bring in all these other kinds of complementary disciplines, other kinds of expertise and skills. So this is something I, I don't know very much about, so it's, um, or anything about, really. Um, but it, it, it's possibly just one of those examples of another kind of, um, like I'm working with an occupational therapist, for example, in this um, uh, house redesign. But, and so there might be things that through her that she sort of kind of can, can loop into as well. But it could, yeah, again, maybe it depends on um, the team of people that are working in that space and, and um, yeah, the different kinds of expertise that you bring into a project. But that's, you know, something that I didn't know much about. So um, it's interesting to kind of think about a little bit more going forward, yeah. Yeah. Um, from your experience, thank you for the panel, by the way, is, um, is it possible for spaces to actually do, uh, to do damage to people with neuro neurodiversity? Um, so actually people enter a space and actually are worse off, uh, not temporarily, but as a longer term outcome? Um, I can say that um, from my research in uh, hospitals, uh, yes. So the environment there is... Um, sufficiently traumatic that they don't want to have to go into a hospital again, which might be a barrier to future care if they ever have another accident or, you know, need, um, you know, a medical care for another reason. And, and, and that's the point at which you then need... And I've worked with kids like that and seen kids like that and they, they need to have play therapists and all this kind of thing come in for their next visit because of previous child like medical trauma. That's like um, on multiple levels too, the idea of um, the project that we're doing in the Rossa Valley for a young woman with uh, chronic fatigue and her situation at the moment is quite bad but the, uh, you know, I spoke to her father this morning saying we think we might need to uh, you know, potentially put her in a hospital for, for a few weeks just to kind of go through a sort of new series of tests but actually uh, that could be detrimental you know, because there's chemicals, sensitivities that she has, then it's not set up for um, having individuals with kind of even more unique situations, I think. So she could potentially come out, you know, worse. Yeah, and I think about schools as well. Like, um, if you've got... Like, a lot of the problems that kids have in schools and, you know, the need for... Well, you see it across the news where kids end up getting locked up in, you know essentially cells for or, or small rooms for several hours and um, and that's just because of like their behavior escalated due to their physical environment you know maybe they weren't able to get that relief sooner or like you know they've got some you know a very noisy environment and that ended up in that child having a meltdown and the teachers don't know how to control it whereas I just always think like what was leading up to that child having a meltdown what was the sensory triggers for that child so that it's almost always sensory, like a child touching them all the time or poking them or, you know, talking loudly. Sounds or smells. Yeah, or, sounds yeah. or smells. 
what what led to that in the environment, that child not being able to get away from that? So, And that then becomes a barrier to their education as well as, you know, bullying and trauma. Yep. Uh, thank you for such Hi. an informative session. So what I'm Thanks. getting from this talk is that it's an interdisciplinary, uh, interdisciplinary approach and every research has an outcome of certain design measures that can be applied. So as an architect, uh, my question is that, is there more success in modifying existing spaces or creating new spaces for children diagnosed with neurodiverse conditions? For example, if a family just had a child who has been diagnosed with certain <coughs> neurodiverse condition and they have an existing house, so is there more success in modifying that existing space or creating a new space for that neurodiverse condition? Well, I think from my experience, um, if we were talking about kind of uh, houses, for one, is that we would always try and work with what's existing, if that works. But, but most of the time, um, it is about sort of setting up new routines or using existing routines, rituals and kind of habits. Um, that you can better manage or better kind of work with if, if you're working as a kind of holistic um, as opposed to, you know, this bit's not quite as good in terms of, you know, not saying that it's kind of not nicer or newer but doesn't kind of work for, for the holistic kind of approach. So um, that's that, you know, that's my experience but we've also done projects that are kind of adaptive and I, look, I think it's kind of about monitoring each one and kind of going, you know, I think that that's kind of the best outcome based on the projects that I've done and seeing how the children have used them. Um, but actually, you know, you could, you, potentially you could set it up in both ways and it, and it would kind of work. So, Yeah, I mean, I think for me it's interesting to think about uh, like the patterns that we have in our kind of daily routines, kind of like what you're talking about there, Anthony, as well. Like, and that there's often like a pattern that we set up our our living spaces around and so it might be just about adapting that pattern slightly which might mean that you can work with the existing or it might be a more you know like I think there's a sort of a sense of you know you don't you don't want to throw everything away and start you're not going to start from from nothing right there's already all those existing kinds of values or patterns of occupation or habits routines and so you're probably still going to bring that into the project no matter what and often that's where some of that research starts is sort of observing what or understanding what those patterns are um, so I don't think there's necessarily and obviously there's cost implications as well so you know if you had a finite amount of money like most people do um, you know how, how you decide to spend that money is kind of a question as well right like do you want to start from scratch and what does that mean versus you know, does that mean you have to then like make compromises when it comes to landscaping or something else? And is there another way that you can kind of approach it? So I don't, yeah, I don't know if there's necessarily a better or worse, and it's maybe a, a bit of a case by case basis, depending on a whole lot of factors as well. Yeah. Uh, hi. I'll come to you next. Yeah. We'll go the back and then the front. Yeah. Cool. Uh, thank you. Um, I guess my question was, uh, I'm an occupational therapist for about eight years, uh, working with kids on the spectrum for the most part of it. Um, I guess what you guys are talking about leads to so much discussion. It's really amazing. Um, 
But what I've been kind of interested in uh, working with NIS and being you know, an advocate for so many families working on the spectrum and stuff, um, how that can reflect in terms of, and I want to know about the scope of the evidence base and how we can actually advocate more for these types of projects with children and families because every year I'm writing new reports about what we can do to modify classrooms or homes and yeah, it's just really exciting. I wonder what the scope is in the next you know, five, ten years and how we can get there. Um, firstly, I love occupational therapists. I think they're great. <laughs> um, particularly based on my motor background as well and um, kids in this space. Um, yeah, there's not a whole lot of stuff that's like backed by research at the moment, um, which has been one of my greatest frustrations actually with um, occupational therapy and the sort of interventions that are being used. Um, and in terms of... Um, I mean, yeah, like you're at the coalface and you're just sort of doing what you can. But in terms of strategic um, research around that and what works, I think actually a lot of the problem with that has come from the, the diagnosis itself. It's so – the diagnosis of autism is so broad that what works for a child with severe intellectual disability and um, high anxiety is not going to, you know, necessarily be applicable to kids that have got maybe like no anxiety and motor impairment and – you know, but otherwise socially, like a little bit socially quirky, but fine. Um, <clears throat> so I think actually it's not really around, like the, the reason why we haven't seen many evidence-based OT interventions that you could use for NDIS justification is because the diagnosis is just too broad. And so when they do the, the research into that, they go, oh, that doesn't work for all kids or it's only working for a subset. Um, whereas now what sort of research is heading to is like, well, what subsets across the whole spectrum are going to be best targeted for this specific intervention? So I think it's going to be oh, at least another 10 to 15 years before we start seeing that come out. And it's going to be through revision of um, the diagnosis of autism and ADHD and um, condition, all the neurodevelopmental conditions, moving towards a more sort of genetic and biological subtyping of those conditions. And then you'll be able to go, okay, you've got that subtype, then, you know, like, OT is going to be great, um, whereas you'll know for other kids, oh, like, you, uh, if you choose OT, you're going to be doing it for two years and you're going to have no benefit. So, yeah, but we're a while away. I don't know if that... Yeah. But but talking with um, the about the project in New Zealand, like, I think Australia is quite a lot, and I'm saying this as a New Zealander, so it's always, you know, disappointing to admit, but, uh, like, it seems like the conversation in Australia is a lot more advanced than it is in New Zealand. Like, you know, just the... And, and there's been some interesting projects. There's, um, it's not about, um, there's a project, a research project on um, innovative learning environments and teacher change, which was kind of these kind of more open plan collaborative classrooms. It was more focused on the teachers and how, um, how they were adapting their teaching practices to these new spaces. But there's also some, a whole lot of other interesting kind of things on the side of that around how do these spaces accommodate or um, not or make it more complex for for people, and so yeah, there's there's sort of conversations happening and, and things starting to. I think there's you know there's some momentum at least, but yeah, it's, it doesn't sound like it's going to be a yeah, and, yeah. Now we are just starting to run out of time, but I have three more questions. If we could fit them, if you guys are happy to run through with that. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So I'm interested in um, neurodiverse language and. Um, agency. So I suppose when you're working individually with a client, it becomes conversational regardless of the non-language or um, diverse input. But how do you deal with that when you work collectively? 
So how do you deal with agency on a collective scale? So classroom or when you're redesigning multi-purpose function rooms? So actually I should jump in here and if we're going to talk about language and autism, that there's a whole chunk of the autism spectrum where they're non-verbal. And so they, their advocacy is done on, like through their parent or some other caregiver. So I think that that is a really important conversation. So there's a whole, whole chunk of the autism spectrum where they're able to self-advocate really well and there's a whole chunk who aren't. So and I, we're still sort of grappling with that and how to address that in research but it's going to play out in lots of other spaces and I don't have the answers yet but that's just a sort of thing to be aware of as yeah. we're sort of heading into this space and particularly in advocacy and language. Or non-language, as the case may be. Well, I, you know, lang language uh, agency communication I, is the, one of the hardest things for for me. I mean, I you know, I'll just use examples because um, you know we're working with uh, unique and amazing people every day. And but I, you know, I, I still am very much kind of understanding what language is right and what language is kind of. Um, and the project, again, I'll go talk about the project with the chronic fatigue with Taylor. And uh, I went to a screening of a film called Unrest, which is um, a woman called Jennifer Breyer in the US. Uh, and she put this documentary, she made this documentary a couple of years ago. And at the end of the documentary, um, I'd just been in contact with Taylor. So she just wrote me this massive long email. And uh, at, the end of the, at the end of the film, I put my hand up to ask a question. And I said that I'd just been contacted by this young girl. Uh, and the next morning I had this email from Taylor saying, don't ever call me a young girl. Uh, and, and not that, you know, but, but it was more about, yes, I'm a, I'm a woman. And I don't even, you know, for me, I'm kind of, I felt really, really embarrassed. But it was about, um, I'm 25 years old and now I'm living this life which is, you know, I'm reliant and I've lost my independence. And all these other things about, friendship groups and, you know, this stuff that I kind of didn't really connect uh, in thinking, yes, there's um, dealing with these individuals who are going through these particular uh, conditions or whatever going through, but there's, there's all these other amazing things that, they've, that they're, they're going through as well. And I think for me, you know, so language and that idea of communicating with them, how do we communicate as designers on that level and then how do we communicate what we're doing with the broader, you know, like in terms of... I mean, going back to the other question, the same sort of thing about uh, my experience, and I think sometimes I sound quite jaded about all this stuff, is, you know, communication through magazines and how do magazines actually want to publish this stuff and talk about it and actually say, you know, just because we're designing these, these um, things that have potentially a kind of deeper meaning that they, they're not as relevant or something or they're kind of not as interesting... Uh, or they're kind of going to touch on things that won't sell magazines. You know, and, and for me, I think, you know, there is a kind of element where we need to be able to say, that's, a, you know, yes, it's exactly what we should be doing. But, but that's still, you know, not happening. And maybe, like, I think from what I understand from your question as well, like this... Um, yeah, it's, it's, I think you've, it's quite important to be kind of alongside rather than like I'm, I'm, I don't go into a project trying to lead the project or like there's certain things that I do need to do but but um, sort of following the appetite for the people who are involved what are, what, are, what are they interested in where where is it pulling them and not resisting that like being 
open-minded enough to kind of go along with that and then know that, okay, well, you know, now we're just going to try and bend this a little bit back this way or, you know, oh, this isn't, you know, so I think, yeah, for me, I, I go in there, like, I don't know very, I, don't, I know very little. And so, like, I, I always have, you know, like, that's a, that's an advantage in some ways of to, to kind of go in there and go, okay, well, I, I'm trying to understand a really radically different way of thinking about the world and trying to kind of frame that up in a way that we can kind of then uh, have a dialogue around it, I guess. So, yeah, it, it's just kind of, for me, bear, just always bearing that in mind. And, and it is really difficult, like, you know, like it's, can be quite awkward how you talk about a project or, yeah, refer to someone or, yeah, and, and that can be, yeah, it's a, um, yeah, just something to kind of, it's a learning process, you know, that you kind of go through and um, spending time with people and, and, and learning like, and, and asking them, well, how do you want me to talk about this or this project or, yeah. And something that university research kind of processes are actually really good at is, is putting all of that stuff down on paper and articulating what are you going to do? Why are you doing it? How will they be informed? And it can be difficult, like, because um, there are things of agency around, well, if someone's eight years old and um, nonverbal or can't read, you know, how do you get them to give informed consent and, and things like that? And it is, well, it's not consent, it's called assent, which is slightly different. But So it's partly, you know, um, explaining that to them in, in kind of simple language. So it's like, we're going to make some stuff together. Is that okay? Yeah. Um, do you mind if I take some photos? Sure. Um, is it, if you, can I write down a couple of things that, that you say about what we've been doing or things that are interesting? Yep, that's okay. If I wanted to use a photo of you, would that be all right? You know, if I put it on a website or showed it to someone else? You know, so it's, it's kind of really just kind of stepping through some of those really kind of quite simple fundamental kind of rights, I guess, and, and trying to make sure that they understand what you're asking and that, and that they're okay with it. Um, my experience uh, is I, I'm an architect and I'm a parent of two kids with ASD and they are very different. And uh, from my um, observations is, uh, okay, we design for kids and we are concerned about mm. their design, but, uh, and we put, do a lot of input with therapies and uh, they evolve, but also their conditions sometimes change. So how do we design for this constant change into mm. them becoming adults? <laughs> oh, I already got the answer. Yeah, no, I, mean, I think that's a, a huge challenge, isn't it? You know, and I mean, people are inherently unpredictable, and then sort of the more um, neurodiverse kind of conditions, there's a there's an even higher, or can be a higher degree of of unpredictability, or what you can anticipate. So. Yeah, how do, how do you know what someone's going to need or um, want or respond well to or not well to in 10 years' time is, yeah, incredibly difficult. And I think one of the um, approaches is just to kind of design with some kind of flexibility in mind of like, so, um, you know, whether it's a space that at the moment is a kind of study or something that might be, maybe also has some plumbing or something in it as well. So it could become an independent um, living space that's attached to the house or separated from the house but serves another purpose in the interim as well so um, just starting to just sort of think about like what some of the possible options might be what could you know what um, we had a conversation before with with um, an architecture student here and just thinking about like 
well, this could be good now, but what are, you know, thinking creatively about, well, what are the other uses? How could that space be adapted in the future? So, um, you know, and then there's also, like, you know, the dreaded kind of questions around, like, well, what about resale? But, you know, what if we want to move house or things like that? So it's really difficult. And I think, you know, something that I think Anthony's projects do really well and is that they're um, really sp carefully crafted to respond to these kinds of needs. But if you're not tuned into that, you might not notice it and you might just see it as a... And I think, you know, fundamentally, that's one of the really exciting things is, is that designing a really good quality space should be kind of good quality for, for all kinds of different people as well. And, you know, part of that good quality of design is the ability to kind of respond or change or offer different things over time. But I'm not to say that, you know... And here's how you do it. Like, I mean, that's the, that's the exciting part of being a designer, right? I think um, the other thing too is that so much of this uh, research and, and conversation is focused around children. Like, mm -hmm. there's like a whole bunch yeah, of adults. Yeah, that's sort of where I thought that question was going as well. These, of like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, how do you cater to adults? And I mean, adults are often more able to self-advocate, so they've made accommodations um, for our current built environment through things like sound cancelling headphones and things like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, with Adults need more research. Yeah, too. yeah. I was, I was up at, um, in Castlemaine a couple of weekends ago at um, the... Uh, oh, I'm going to forget their names now, which is bad. The Cantrells, who are a husband and wife um, filmmaker couple, experimental filmmakers in their late 80s and early 90s. Um, and they've got a son who's 60, um, who uh, is autistic, and um, they showed a whole lot of their films going back from the like mid-60s when he was really, really young um, and that, and films that he worked on as well and they're quite amazing. But he's 60 years old. He's, they, they all live um, in the same family home. He's, he's a ceramicist and painter and the house is full of, of his artworks as well. But it was quite inspiring just to see how they kind of um, work as a family unit, how, that, how those kind of creative practices have all been integrated and that they found these ways to kind of work together as well but yeah the, the um yeah it's hugely complex and to think about that kind of longer term is yeah really important i'll be very quick um just okay. to comment back on the ot um I also love OTs. <laughs> I've got a daughter on the spectrum. And one of the things that the OT's done in our school, not just because of our family, is um, worked with the school. And um, there's some really simple things that they've that she's suggested that the school's taken up. For example, having five-minute climb times in the mm. just throughout the day when they need it. Mm -hmm. Not just the autistic kids, but anyone. And um, also bare feet in the classroom. Right. So, again, then that stretches out to the physical environment. What are they bare feeting on and where, what are the climbing mm, things mm. look like and where are they positioned? So, that's that whole sort of how do you solve it in the landscape. And, um, mm, mm. But then uh, just also made me think um, most of the things that in my learning about autism that I have um, learned has been that anything, pretty much most things that work for kids on the spectrum works for every kid in some way. Yeah. It's giving extra you know, clear instructions or extra yeah. sensory offers. So I, um, I'm sad to hear that the, the research isn't... You don't feel that it's there enough to advocate because I would have thought general population research mm. could be taken and mm. proven that it's great for everyone and just extra good for, you know, a range of, of yeah. neurodiversity. So can you come at it from that angle? 
Well, I th- I, I'll do my best. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I, mean I think to say that. Yeah, I mean, one of the motivations for me moving into this space was a lot of the research I'd done um, in my PhD was not about autism at all, but it was about the kind of things that we tend to background, like not we're not all probably paying attention to the traffic noise behind us and those kinds of things. But we're not paying attention to it because we're cognitively able to separate that out. But not everybody is. Um, and it takes effort as well to separate that out. And so like one of the things I studied at Arctic School was acoustics and a lot of the kind of background noises and the impacts that have on your health and well-being irrespective of where you sit on a neurodiversity, neurotypical spectrum, not a spectrum, neurodiversity spectrum. Um, and so, yeah, exactly, like, you know, who wouldn't appreciate a space that's much, like, that little bit quieter or a house that's, yeah, that little bit more inviting or more, yeah, these other things that, that we kind of, um, some people can kind of uh, work around or overcome, um, without it being too much of an issue for other people are a huge issue. But if you made that accessible for everyone, it would be a huge benefit to the whole population. I totally that? agree. Taking yeah. out those dark brown 70s tiles from all of your rooms. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Lightening yeah. all the space up. Yeah, getting rid of all the fluorescent lights and the overlit supermarkets, you know, all of those kinds of things, yeah. I mean, that's. I think that's a really exciting direction and that's kind of what, you know, that's kind of my mo- motivation as well, and this is, is it's not just about uh, better quality. Envi- well, I think by making more inclusive environments that are of better quality, it actually has a huge uh, population benefit as well. And so, yeah, there would be, yeah, at some point there'll be an opportunity to kind of go, yeah, see? Yeah. Um, should we wrap it up there? Yeah, cool. Thanks everyone Thank for you. coming along and thanks for the great conversation. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.